Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hi, everybody. My name is Drew Horning. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Today, we have Mark Cooper on with us. Mark, would you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Drew. Uh, my name is Mark Cooper, and I live between north of Boston and Bangor, Maine. And when did you do the process? I finished the process approximately 71 days ago. <laughs> So you're a newbie. Yes, sir. And what's life like post-process? Well, needless to say, um, I departed the process at a very interesting time in the history of our world um, where we had been kind of locked away, working on all this deep stuff, only to come back out and have the world or at least our country and subsequently the world um, in the, in the throes of a pandemic. So having done all this self-discovery and deep work and then to come back and have the world turned upside down was a, a very surreal experience. Yes. Yeah. I remember that 71 days ago because uh, I was a teacher in your process and you know, you, you had an even, more interesting thing in the sense that the business you were in was uh, certainly needed, but by the time you came out, it was in high demand. You were in the toilet paper industry. Well, uh, interestingly, I had been spending close to a year um, establishing this new company and setting up an operation manufacturing plant. and. Uh, right before we were about to kind of go into production is when I started the process. So I essentially pressed the pause button right before the company, or right at probably the busiest time in the in the period that we had started this whole endeavor. So it was, needless to say, it was challenging to just shut it all off, the phones and the computer. And my partner's like, I'm not going to be able to reach you for a week. What? <laughs> I'm like, whatever, everyone will survive, you, <laughs> uh, including me. And so um, so that was kind of difficult, but it was also a little bit of a relief because I needed a break because it's just been 20-hour days for months on end. And there was a chance to, to kind of regroup for me and really you know, dig into some self-development. So when you, when you went into the process and, and dug into the work, what was a moment in time that felt powerful for you that you can even remember now? Well, first of all, I'll say that I didn't really fully understand. I'm not, I don't know. I can't speak for other people, but what was going to happen in the Hoffman process? Wait, you, you signed up for this one week event and you weren't exactly sure what was going to happen. 
I wasn't. Who did you trust? I had to trust the process and I had to trust myself because I know I've worked a lot on myself over the years and I know that I've had to make myself vulnerable and open to new possibilities and, and change if, if I ever expect something positive to happen. So I was looking forward to, to, I guess, call it the unknown. And I also know that when I go in seeking something or looking for something that that often can limit the p- potential or the possibilities. And so instead of keeping an open mind, so I, I, I went in with an open mind and, and I knew that that something positive would happen if I allowed myself to, to be open to it. And that's, that was the, the attitude I had. <laughs> Beautiful. And then, and then as, as you started to engage, what did you, what did you learn? What did you become aware of during the process? What became very apparent right from the beginning was a lot of the emphasis was on addressing past patterns and how my parents um, had such an impact on on my my life and my patterns and essentially every aspect of of my being. And I had been aware of that through readings over the past few years and a writer named James Hollis, for example, who writes a lot about Carl Jung and that as adults, and we, we tend to live um, the unlived lives of our parents. That was very much on mind for me. And I continue to read, you know, some of his books, what matters most and so forth. So Mark, take us to that moment in time. Where are you in the process and, and what's happening for you? The second day, for example, when we were working on forgiveness towards my mother was very powerful for me because I was adopted and raised by my parents um, since I was an infant, never had met my biological parents and struggled, frankly, most of my life with my mother who raised me. She was very rigid, very cold, very inflexible. She was never really there in my mind emotionally. She did things. She did all the tasks that you would, I guess, expect or want or need, at least outwardly, uh, in terms of taking care of me, providing you know all the necessary things, but but not the emotional support that I, I guess, I was seeking. And I was angry at her and felt that I was cheated in some way of, you know, having that, that close emotional connection to my mother. And I, in the, in the, in the process of having to forgive her, it was very difficult for me because I was so angry and had been carried, carrying this from those feelings for my whole life. And so I said on the first day at Hoffman that I, knew I was going to cry at some point because I had been stuffing emotions deep down inside for so long. So you had a sense that this experience was going to crack you open to, to your grief, to your tears, to your anger. That was one of, again, without, without emphasizing the seeking part, that was definitely something that I, I had hoped would happen because I just knew that it was necessary. I knew that I needed to open up and not hold things 
so tight and so protective. I just didn't know how. And one of the goals that I had hoped to accomplish out of Hoffman was I'd get some tools to to learn how to um, to let go of, of some of those negative feelings. And so where, when when you picture letting go during the process, what do you picture for you? Well, well, again, as it relates to my mother, it was in that exercise of forgiveness, I became so um, conflicted between wanting to forgive her and not being able to. <laughs> the patterns that I come, came to learn, that I, I created these patterns for myself, they were so, so strong, holding on to, to those feelings, protecting protecting myself to, to have to protect myself to stuff feelings down to you know do things to help me survive in life by not having to deal with what i was actually feeling the beautiful and painful part of it i love the the reference to that conflict um, and patterns do give us that capacity to survive childhood and in a way um, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's always a good thing that we survived childhood and that we were able to uh, make it on into adulthood. However, the cost is that what worked then doesn't work now. And there's an expiration date to those uh, survival patterns that we learned from mom and dad. And that's part of, part of what I hear I hear you saying so how did you how did the process support you in being with that tension that internal conflict well helping me to gain greater insight into what it was like for her like to be to to picture her more as a person than a mother and to take us back at the time the exercise was to bring myself back to my childhood and my mother to her childhood. And then for us to be able to get to meet and know each other as two children, basically the emotional child that we talk about in Hoffman and, and make her more human. Not, not so much just my mother who raised me. What happened for you when you were able to do that and have that human to human experience with her during the process well it helped make me more compassionate to her, to her she didn't set out to become the person she did she was raised by her parents and you know just like young talks about you know we we just follow the patterns until until someone is strong enough to break them and when you when you allowed your heart to feel more compassionate for this mom who raised you what happened to you well that's where i broke down drew <laughs> that's when the tears started to come and they didn't stop i literally just started to cry uncontrollably and for an extended period of time when everyone had left the class my teacher Laurie had come back in to check on me, but after she realized I was okay, 
she left me alone to just kind of be with myself and continue to just purge whatever I needed to. And I don't know, I probably cried for 15, 20 minutes at least. <laughs> I don't know how long exactly, but it was so physically exhausting. I can't even explain. It was very cathartic. Obviously it felt great, but I also felt emotionally drained. And the rest of that day, frankly, was very difficult for me to stay, stay focused, stay attention. I think I even fell asleep in one of the subsequent meditations because I was so tired, you know, from crying. Um, yeah. Wow. There, what a um, somatic representation, a somatic experience of grief and the release of hurt. Uh, have you post-processed, do you have a deeper sense of the somatic nature of the work? A thousand percent. <laughs> I think I mentioned to you um, at the end of each day, I've been very grateful that my son uh, has been able to work with me in the new business and we actually live together. And he, since like, like all college kids have been home the last few months, he's come to work and been able to stay there and take his online classes. So at the end of each day, we go for, a, I go for a run and he rides his bike with me and we talk and it's literally the best part of my day where I get to spend, you know, 45 minutes an hour with my son. Sometimes I'll run a little further just so I can have a little extra time with him. And we talk about life and my son is an unusual 20 year old, young man where he's very sensitive and very in touch with his emotions. And I have an enormous sense of gratitude that I've been able to demonstrate some of those characteristics to him that he would want to adopt, but also, you know, become his own person. But my point is we were running the other night and we were talking about somatic activities and the fact that by using physical activity or emotion in concert with the thoughts of what it is that you want to change um, have a much greater effect on the, I don't know, let's use last ability for a better word. It sticks. So when you just say something, it doesn't have as much impact than when you say it and do something at the same time. And it changes something in your body and that's what, and in your mind. And that's something that I learned at Hoffman. And it's been very effective for me to help use some of those tools. Yeah. You know, there's a book called Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. And it talks about how animals are able to shed and move their bodies to kind of slough off some of that trauma or the emotion. And that his research shows that that's, in fact, what humans need to do more of. And you're, you're referencing this, uh, the second step of the cycle of transformation, which is expression. And I, I just love that image of you and your son on your regular evening run and bike ride. What a, what a nice scene as you cycle and run your way in the Northeast there. It's awesome. We, we run along the Kandusky River in Bangor, Maine, and um, the water is at different levels and different strengths at different times, depending on how much rain or snow has melted. 
and we run through downtown, which is pretty vacant right now because of the fact nobody's out on the streets, obviously. So it's almost like we have this whole, this whole path to ourselves and it's really a special experience. How did you, how did you navigate that um, in the process around working on healing the relationship with your uh, adoptive mother, but also uh, trying to understand and heal with your biological parents? Well, it was a very challenging endeavor. So through the process, I realized in my biological mother, again, I might've mentioned this last time, but only, only a few years ago, after I read a book called um, The Girls Who Went Away, um, and it was a story of interviews of hundreds of women who had given up their children for adoption in the late 50s and 60s. And at the time, there was a lot of shame and guilt around adoption and religious organizations and socially, it was it was obviously, it was considered a sin, you know, and, and very shameful for the families, for the women. They were, they were forced in many cases to give the children away, even if they didn't want to. Um, they were hidden in homes or they were literally sent away to homes where they were, uh, where they would have the child and then come back. And in many cases, people never even knew. So this was guilt and shame they had to live with their entire lives. And just through the process of reading this book and being like learning more about really my mother's story, because that was her story. She was sent to her sister's house in Washington until she was ready to have me, and no one ever talked about it. Um, only a few people knew. And so what I learned was that a mother that gives up their child, and it seems like common sense, Drew, but <laughs> never, never, ever forgets it's with them every day like a it's like a loss that um they're reminded of perpetually so could you imagine your mom living the rest of her life uh with the a scar the burden of having given you up well that's the irony i never thought about it once and i and it made me realize like how selfish i had been like, how could I have never thought about what it was like for her? All I ever thought about was, oh, me. You know, like, I am the one who, the one who suffered, so to say. Or I was the one who had to bear this burden. Never did I think about what it would have been like for her to every single day worry about or think about where am I? Am I okay? Whatever happened to me? Did she do the right thing? The guilt. And, and, it, and I cried. I cried a lot, you know, reading that book. And um, I'm emotional now, even just, just talking about it. And it made me sad. And so these women physically carry, um, carry illness and you know, psychological pain that they, that they experience every day in some cases, chronic and acute pain, literally, that they can never physically treat. And in, in many cases where women are reconnected with their, their biological children, those, those chronic and acute pains actually disappear, like literally disappear. 
there's documented cases of that happening. Wow. So wait, Mark, let me let me just understand this. Part of what you're saying and part of what you got from this beautiful book, this gift, was that um, you helped it helped to give you a sense of the pain and in a way even the trauma that your mom must have been living with and that in fact that doesn't just live in the heart that that leaks out to the body and causes illness and and did you get in touch with your mom an interesting story so my i was married at the time in my my wife had done some research and actually found the names of my biological parents. And this was probably about 20 years ago. And she wrote down their names on a piece of paper. She had gone through a local agency. And at the time, I had a lot going on in my life. And I wasn't totally prepared to... Well, let me take a step back. Um, I was traveling for work. And I was in Canada with a business associate and it was right at the beginning when cell phones had come out. <laughs> so my wife had called me at, and I was driving on a road outside of Montreal and she said, I have some news for you. And I said, well, what? She goes, we found out who your biological parents are. And I literally like, I had to pull the car over because it was obviously the big, big news. <laughs> so I was with this person who worked with me I pulled over on the side of the road. She said, I found out the names of your parents. And she told me who they were. She said, your mother lives in, in Montreal. And meanwhile, I'm in Canada. I'm in Montreal. Oh, my gosh. So it was, it was crazy, like, the fact that just this connection. And I said, wow. So so anyway, she gave me their names. And, and I went back home. And um, I put the piece of paper with their names in the drawer. And I was like, you know what? I'm just not ready to do anything with this right now. I had a lot going on. We had young kids and had a business I was you know, involved in. And I just didn't feel that I was emotionally ready at the time to take it to the next step. And so fast forward. So fast forward, um, maybe five years ago. Five years. Oh, no. So that must have been fast forward 15 years. Yeah, 15 years. Um I lost a piece of paper with their names on it. <laughs> we moved, I got divorced, my life, you know, everything got crazy, but I was ready again to start looking. And by the way, my parents who raised me, my mother had always encouraged me, you know, if I wanted to find my biological parents that she would help and, and was very supportive of that. So um, she in fact did help put me with an organization in Boston the woman at the agency said, well, I've, I've had the names of your parents, but before, again, this was before she gave me the name of my mother. She said, I want you to read this book. And that's where the girls that went away. So that was to help get some great insight. And she said, and your biological father, <laughs> he wants to do a DNA test because he apparently isn't sure, you know, that, that you're actually his kid or that um, didn't even really know that you existed, so to say. So, so those are the kind of the two things that I got from that experience. But as it relates to my biological mother, what, what I found out after I read the book, and she said, well, she's actually passed away. And she died at 56 years old from cancer. And so we talked about you know, carrying the physical, you know, the kind of physical pain and trauma and, and illness. It's very possible. And it was stomach, it was colon cancer. And she always had a lot of stomach issues. And 
and I know um, people. One of the places people carry stress is in their stomach, and it can cause a lot of physical discomfort and pain. What was that like for you to uh, get that news in that moment of her death? I was sad. I was sad because when I was finally ready to be open to finding her and, and actually reaching out, I knew I'd never have that opportunity. And did you take the DNA test? I did. I did. I um, So I'll just quickly on my mother's side, I'll say that what I did do was um, – was I, I reached out and I met her sister, um, who was my aunt, my biological aunt, who um, who I subsequently met. She came up to Boston from Washington. It's her sister that she went to live with, you know, after I was born. And I, I met her and um, I had two, I have two biological brothers from my mother. And I reached out and spoke to her husband, who she subsequently married, who was not my father, but um, he knew of me. Because after 28 years of marriage, she told him about me. So they had been married for 28 years before she actually told him. And she told him only when she got she had cancer and was terminally ill. So I guess at that point, she didn't want to have any secrets. So when I called him, he, he knew about me. But he wasn't prepared to have me meet his children, who were my, my biological brothers. He didn't feel that it was his right or his decision to get, he felt, my biological mother is the only one that should have given them that, you know, that permission, so to say, or give me that permission. So long story short, after a couple of years, he finally caved in and, um, and I just met my biological brother. One of them last summer, he came to visit me and, uh, and he was ecstatic to have an older brother <laughs> and he's a good guy and we, we stay in touch. But, um, He's, he has shared a lot of stories about my mother and some of the, you talked about the patterns. He said it, it makes sense because she was very protective of, of him and his brother. She never let them out of their sight. And, and you can imagine, I guess, as a, as a mother who had given up a child, you would be very protective of your other children. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. so again, in talking and he, in reflecting, he, he started to see some patterns again that would have put the pieces together in terms of why she was so nervous about them and, you know, so fastidious about certain, certain things. Anyway, in my biological father. So after we had the test, um, he and I met at a hotel outside of Boston and it was very, very formal, frankly, it was very businesslike. You know, I got some information on his family, some medical history. He and I were very similar, <laughs> strangely similar both have two sons and a daughter uh both entrepreneurs and started businesses and have had various levels of success and failures he and i are both divorced we're both married for a similar period of time we were both drew believe it or not kicked out of hebrew school at 12 years old i mean what are the chances of that his oldest son's name is mark same as me so it was really uncanny how many uh, similarities we had. But at the same time, he was like, well, you know, I don't really see any reason why we need to have a relationship. You have parents that, that love you and raise you. You, you know, seem to be doing fine. And you have your own family and good luck. I wish you well. And, and that was pretty much That's his rationale. How did you feel about that i was actually okay with it i i didn't really have a lot of expectations going in 
And so I was like, okay, I got to meet him and interesting guy and kind of viewed him as somewhat selfish. He was with uh, my biological mother literally for one night, New Year's Eve, 1966. And then I was born. Oh, wait, it was... It was a one night stand. It was a one night stand. Yeah, literally. They and they literally never saw each other after that one night. So apparently she had reached out to him and told him she was pregnant and apparently he had sent her some money, I guess believing that she was gonna have an abortion, I I'm assuming. That was kind of the last of it. He'd ever heard he'd ever hear of it. And she didn't. <laughs> so so in his so I guess after that he never knew whether I existed or not, you know, never heard from her, never heard from anyone 45 or six or seven years later when I reached out, you know, he was pretty surprised. And he had said over the course of the years, even though he didn't think about it often, every once in a while, if he, he, he told me a story when he saw a young person at, at a gym once, who I guess looked a little bit like him, maybe at some point in his life, if the thought crossed his mind that maybe I was out there somewhere, but but really never put a lot of thought into it beyond that. Tell me about the mom who raised you and 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 how this relates. So after having the breakdown on the second day and really letting go of a lot of emotional pain that I had been carrying with me, I. I desperately wanted to to forgive my mother and to find some way to, I guess, open up and let her in. And I was still, as much as I had let go and as much as I wanted to feel a connection to her, there was still this incredibly strong barrier preventing me from really letting her in. I I was able to, to emotionally, physically transform into this wall and get closer to, to my mother. And, and then when I got home back out of Hoffman into the world, the first time I saw my mother, I wasn't able to say, I love you. I still wasn't able to, I won't lie, (laughs) but I did give her, I did give her a hug, an authentic hug, which I can't ever recall in my entire life, you know, 53 years old, ever really hugging her and feeling anything other than kind of awkward and uncomfortable. But I literally hugged her and felt a warmth and closeness that I had never felt in my entire life. And she just, you know, melted in my arms and cried and, you know, thanked me. And that was, um, that was a very impactful experience. And since I've been home and since Hoffman, I have been able to say, I love you to her. Only once. Wow. What is that like to say out loud this thing you haven't been able to say your whole life to say, I love you? What's that like for you to share that? Well, right now, in, in Hoffman terms, I'm kind of curled up a little bit um, in a ball, not in a physical ball, but in call it a half ball. I have my arms around my knees and it still feels uncomfortable to me. It still feels awkward and strange. But I know that I, I know that I can do it, and I know that it will make my life better and her life better in some way by allowing myself to change those patterns that have prevented me from 
feeling a closeness to to her. So that's that's kind of I guess the only way I can explain it is that I'm still experiencing physical pain, and I think or discomfort I guess is probably a better description. But I but now I guess I probably right now I like I want to get up and dance or bang something because I know I I know it'll help me you know kind of relieve some of this um, discomfort. Yeah, Mark, I um. I'm just sitting here listening to your story as you recount it. Uh, it feels like it's happening in the moment as you sort of tell the the timeline. And I'm I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for your time. Well, thank you for allowing me to to transfer back to Hoffman in some way and carry it forward in another way. So, what is uh, after transference today, what's on the agenda for the journal tomorrow? Oh, well, I I didn't look, Drew. I, I try to live one day at a time <laughs> and be, be in the moment as best I can. Hey, that sounds like a good plan. Fear lives in the future, fear and anxiety, and that's, that's, that's a place I'm trying to travel less frequently. Here's to that. Yes. <laughs> Mark, thanks for your time. Thanks, Drew. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.